Yes. Good morning, Woodland Hills. So good to see you all here this morning. Get on our Facebook and don't forget to like our page. And if you don't like it, like it anyways. We want to be popular, gal. Uh, yeah, so remember we've got this thing going on for this next week. Uh, generous donor put up uh, matching funds of up to $10,000. So everything you give uh, up till this next week uh, will be doubled up to the point of $10,000. And feel free to give more than that if you want. <laughs> We're in need. But um, yeah, so really, really pray about that. Um, we're really doing an extreme makeover on this plaza, and it's a, it's a cool thing. Um, it is an extreme makeover. Uh, the condition it was in was, well, comical. It, it was bizarre. And so it, we're really cleaning it up and, and just gutting the inside and redoing all of it. It takes a lot of work. Thank you, all you volunteers have been putting in your time. And uh, it takes a lot of money, you know, to, to, re, to redo this. But we're going to be doing a lot more. I mean, we'll be using it to offer the community a service by having a cool theater. But more than that, we're going to be using it for some really cool ministry opportunities, uh, giving kids at risk uh, job training and skills and stuff like that, and a number of other things as well. So it's an important thing. Keep that in, in, in your prayers and re- just listen to God. Uh, if you're wondering, if, if this ends up being podcast and folks watching this are, are wondering, why is he all sweaty when it's November in Minnesota? It's about 10 degrees outside. And how am I sweaty? Well, it's because we just had the coolest dance party, did we not? That, that, I mean, that was just, that was good worship. I love that kind of worship. I just love it. <clears throat> I don't know how people stand still with that. I, I, in fact, you know, I, I have a, a kind of a tired voice this morning, and I was committed to n- not singing very loud. <laughs> and one song into this thing, I totally forgot about that. <laughs> So you, you get my smoker's voice whether you like it or not. Arr! It's my sexy voice, my FM voice. All right. It's not that sexy, really, when you think about it. Um, so I'm going to open with a word of prayer. And I, I'm going to pray here, uh, not just for this message, but uh, I, I want us to join for a moment in solidarity with just the folks who are in the Philippines and that terrible, unthinkable thing that they've gone through with this typhoon. I'm sure some of you have... Many, most of you probably have seen pictures of just the level of uh, destruction and loss of life and heartbreaking, heartbreaking stories. Um, so so let's, let's pray for them and, and also pray for this message. Abba Father, uh, we as your people know that we have a unique, a unique power to change the world through prayer by talking to you. It releases kingdom influence. And uh, sometimes in the light of disasters of this magnitude, it's hard to even know where to begin to pray. But we're just saying, God, release your kingdom there. Really bring your kingdom there. Release, release your, your comforting spirit there. Um, God, we pray that you just bring some consolation to those who are in nightmarish situations. Um, Lord, we, we pray that, that you would bring your protecting spirit to pre- prevent further loss of life. Uh, thank you, God, for the way you are, uh, raising up people uh, and, and help there. Uh, continue that, Lord. Increase that and move in people's hearts uh, to give to this cause and um, move in our hearts and help us to listen as to how you might be moving us uh, to, to offer up some sacrifice for, uh, for that cause. But God, our hearts just go out with, to these uh, beautiful people in this, in this demonic situation. And now, Lord, as we're going to put forth your word, we pray, God, that you would use it. We, we don't have any confidence in human speeches uh, they are of no value unless your spirit is using those words uh, to change our hearts and change our minds and open our eyes. And so, Father, we pray right now in Jesus' name that you, God, has used this word to open our eyes, uh, bring the kingdom into our hearts and minds. 
uh, bring conviction where conviction is necessary into our hearts. Um, change us, Lord God, and, and help us to uh, see the, the, the chains that we sometimes wear without even knowing it. And to, in the power of your Spirit, throw off those shackles to walk in the beauty of the light of the kingdom of God. Let it happen, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. And all of God's people said, Amen. 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 So we're doing this series on really waking up to some of the demonic aspects of our culture. Uh, The greatest threat to the kingdom is not something you can see or someone you can see or some philosophy that you can see. The greatest threat is what you don't see. It's what feels normal to us. Uh, And that's, that's an area where kingdom people need to be suspicious of all of our normals, call into question all of our normals, the common sense assumptions of our culture. Uh, it's what you don't notice that can do the most damage, like the proverbial frog boiling in the water. Uh, if it goes slow enough, it doesn't even, doesn't even notice that it's, it's being boiled alive. And so we need to wake up to all the aspects of our culture that are inconsistent with the kingdom of God. And we're, we're zeroing in on what is at least one of the most, if not the most, uh, destructive aspects of the culture, and that is consumerism. So last week we started by just talking about how, how the con- consumeristic mindset moves us in a direction uh, that is contrary to the kingdom of God. <clears throat> in that sense, it is antichrist. Now I want to read a passage from, from uh, uh, 1 John um, to get this thing going. He says, Dear children, this is the last hour. And that's just John's way of referring to the last chapter of world history. This is, this is the last stage of the, the, the whole thing that God has planned. We're in, the, we're in the final stage. And he says, And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. Look at that. Many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. You know it's the last hour. You know you're in the final stage of, of history when um, there are many Antichrists around. Now here's the thing. Most evangelicals at least, when we hear the word antichrist, we think of the book of Revelation. And we think of that, that uh, person who's going to uh, give the mark of the beast on people, 666. And most evangelicals think that that is still something that's going to happen in the future. That's why ever so often you'll hear about um, folks who are paranoid about the number 666. There are folks who won't buy a house if it has the address 666, or they won't get 666 on the social security cards, or uh, they won't have 666 on their credit cards, uh, or what have you. But as I shared last week, or, or several weeks ago, the book of Revelation, and by the way, we're going to, uh, in, in response to this message I gave a couple weeks ago in the book of Revelation, um, we're going to have a whole series on Revelation in the spring. Something like that tweaked a lot of interest there. But um, the book of Revelation is an apocalyptic book, which means it's a very symbolic book. You can't take it literally if you... Try to take it literally, it, it, it reads as nonsense. But those, the symbols in the book of Revelation have uh, two, two focal points. One is if they refer to the events and people of the first century. The first application is, is, is to things that were happening at the time that John wrote that book. But they also then have an application throughout history. Uh, they, they, they show a paradigm of a warfare that's going to be going on throughout history. So there's a, as with much scripture, there's a reference in the immediate present when the book is written, but also it shows patterns that go on throughout history. Now, in the book of Revelation, there is this Antichrist. I would argue that that's referring to Nero Caesar. 
Some scholars argue it refers to Diocletian, who was this other insane emperor uh, towards the end of the first century. But Nero Caesar, in, in the nu- nu- numerical system of, of uh, the Romans, it comes out to mean 666. And, um, and so I, with, with many other scholars, hold that the, the primary reference was to Nero Caesar. He, he, he tried to exterminate Christianity in the 60s. And when John is writing that, that was still future, if, in fact, we were referring to Nero Caesar. And, and yet he says there are many antichrists already. So Nero Caesar becomes sort of the prototype of the kind of people and the kind of things that try to extinguish the Christian faith, that try to undermine the kingdom. And so for us, Nero Caesar, uh, this, this antichrist in the book of Revelation, is the paradigm for that which opposes God. But we've got to be aware that there's also numerous other things uh, that oppose God and therefore are antichrist. And I say all that to explain why. Last week, I referred to consumerism as having an antichrist spirit. Uh, one person was really confused, saying, are you saying that the antichrist is here already and this is his system? And it's like, no, the antichrist is here, but I'm, I'm not referring to a particular person. Um, that particular person, I think, was Nero Caesar, and I'm not looking for him anymore. But I'm looking for everything that opposes Christ now. Everything that, is, that, that could push back against and tries to extinguish uh, the kingdom life now, and consumerism does that. If we acquiesce to it, if we're not aware of it, it moves us in a direction that's completely contrary to the direction we're supposed to be moving as followers of Christ. By way of review, I want us just to see how anti-Christ this mindset is. And so here's a little chart. Look at this. Contrasting the kingdom with consumerism. <clears throat> Can you put that up, Dan? Uh, the kingdom is predicated on trusting God. We're to, we're to look to God for our security and uh, our life. Whereas in consumerism, we're moved in the direction of putting our trust in possessions and wealth and things like that. We find our security in our retirement accounts or in our house or our nice car or whatever. In the kingdom, we're to live life out of a fullness that we get from God. There's a fullness that's supposed to motivate us, a fullness of love that motivates all we do. Whereas in consumerism... It's all predicated on people trying to live to fill an emptiness. So whereas in the kingdom, we're flowing outward in the consumer mindset. We're trying to, we're consuming. We're trying to devour to fill an emptiness that we have on the inside. In the kingdom, we're to seek first the kingdom of God. But in consumerism, we're, we're, we're conditioned to seek first our well-being. As we saw last week, that quote, um, we put our, our economic improvement is our, our number one concern. In the kingdom, we saw that we're, last week, we're, we're to own nothing. Uh, Jesus said, whoever does not give up all that they have cannot be my disciple. Uh, we're, we, we can legally have it, but uh, we're to realize we don't own it. We can't cling to it. It's not ours. Whereas in consumerism, not only do we own things, but we are conditioned to want to own more and more and more. That's what makes the whole system run. In the kingdom, we're to live with contentment with, with, with whatever we have. But in consumerism, we're conditioned to have a discontentment, to always be in need in the kingdom, we're to live with an other-oriented mindset, whereas in the consumer mindset, it conditions us to have a self-oriented mindset. In the kingdom, we're to live with self-sacrificial love, whereas in consumerism, we're conditioned to, to live with a self-indulgent greed, wanting more and more and more. In the kingdom, we're, 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 to, we're to live below our means so that we have extra to give to the kingdom cause and to the poor hungry. Whereas in consumerism, we're conditioned to live beyond our means. That's why the average American has $15,000 debt in their credit card. We borrow from the future uh, to pay for our present and get increasingly in debt that way. The two are absolutely opposed to each other. 
Now, in saying this, I'm not saying that, that capitalism is a bad economic system. I'm not up here advocating socialism or communism. I'm not talking economics or politics of any kind whatsoever. In fact, capitalism uh, is pretty ingenious in terms of, of, of bringing about wealth. It turns a vice into a virtue. Uh, it has this thing, greed. Human beings always want more and more and more. And, and capitalism finds a way to run a whole economy on that. It's pretty smart. But our job isn't to be commentators on the uh, effectiveness of economic systems. Our job as kingdom people, whatever system we're in, whatever country we're in, whatever regime we're under, our job is to be aware of the antichrist dimensions of the water that we swim in, of the air that we breathe, and to wake up to it and therefore revolt against it. Because insofar as we give into it, will be pulled in a direction that's contrary to the kingdom. If we're going to be kingdom people who manifest the outrageous sacrificial love and generosity of our Abba Father, we have to buck up against the consumeristic mindset. Uh, There's there's no other other way to do it. You can't can't be giving uh, out of the abundance of what you have if you can hardly afford your own lifestyle. Uh, You can't be giving your time if all your time is spent uh, working to to chase after more stuff. You can't be giving up your money if you if you're going into increasing debt in in your in in your own family in your own with your own possessions. We've got to live below our means if we're going to be manifesting the generosity of of Abba Father. Now, what I want us to see here this morning is this. I, I want to bring another dimension to this. It's a very important dimension. Now, when I say that, that, that consumerism has an antichrist dimension to it, I'm not just speaking metaphorically. And I'm not just speaking about a social phenomenon or, or an economic phenomenon. Uh, I mean that there are actual antichrist uh, forces of evil that are at work in consumerism to suck the kingdom life out of us. Paul says this in, in Ephesians 6, that our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's never against humans. If it's flesh and blood, it's someone that we're supposed to be loving and dying for if necessary. It's not our enemy. But our struggle is against uh, the rulers and against authorities and powers of this dark world and against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Those are all spirit categories of of angelic beings, high-level cosmic angelic beings. The New Testament speaks quite a bit about them. doesn't give us much information about the details of what these different categories of, of agents do but it speaks about these different categories. Uh, we also read in other passages about a category of, of angelic beings called thrones. Uh, another one is elemental spirits. Uh, another one is principalities and powers. And of course, we read a lot about Satan, who is the head of this whole rebellious regime. And we know by comparing uh, the New Testament with other apocalyptic writings of the time that all of these different categories refer to different levels of high-ranking angelic beings most of whom, or all of whom, it depends on, on the writing, have rebelled against God. See, it's like this. Um, human beings, when we were first created, we were given a domain of authority, right? And, and our domain was the earth and the animal kingdom. And our job is to manifest God's character in the way that we care for the earth and the animal kingdom. But when we rebelled, we then began to misuse our authority. Instead of manifesting God's care for the earth and the animal kingdom, we began to use it for our own purposes, as though it had no value beyond what it means to us. We begin to exploit it. We begin to abuse it. We're, we're, we're fallen people. That's why most people today don't give any thought to what suffering they put animals through to get their food on the plate. Um, we're, not, we're, not, we're not properly using our authority, our responsibility, to care about the earth and the animal kingdom. Well, in the same way, 
In the first century, they understood that these different levels of angelic beings, these cosmic authorities, were also given a domain of authority. They understood that these different categories of angelic beings had responsibility for different areas of creation and for different aspects of human society. That was their job description. And just like when human beings fell, uh, everything under us suffered because we now misuse our authority, so also when these angelic beings rebelled against God, everything under their authority begins to suffer because they also misuse their authority. They're not, they still have their authority, but they're using it at cross-purposes with God. Not in alignment with God's will, but contrary to God's will. And that is why, folks, in this earth we find ourselves in is a veritable war zone. It's why everything has been tainted by the fall. Not just human beings, but all of creation. Paul says the whole creation groans. The whole creation needs to be redeemed. Uh, it's all been corrupted. It isn't the way God originally created it to be. Nature is permeated with violence, and that's not consistent with God's character. Um, it, 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 it doesn't run the way it's supposed to run. And so when we see things like this disaster that happened in the Philippines this last week, uh, don't think that God's up there hurling a hurricane at the Philippines like a bowling ball just because he wants to slaughter 10,000 people or something. The God who's revealed in Christ doesn't do stuff like that. No, this isn't just God bringing about a hurricane. This is evidence of nature gone awry. This is, this is nature being oppressed by the, the cosmic powers that were supposed to care for creation, but now instead they're corrupting creation. And I'm not saying that there's a demon behind every hurricane or tornado or disease or parasite, but I am saying that if the earth wasn't corrupted this way, we wouldn't be having things like these killer typhoons and hurricanes and, and, and mudslides and, 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 and every other kind of disease. We wouldn't have a nature that does not conform to the character of God. It's the same thing with human society. They understood that uh, these certain categories of angelic beings have responsibility to care for humans. And some of these beings who have responsibility to care for humans have rebelled against God. There are still some that are good, and the Bible talks about them. Angels that watch over us. But there are some that are evil. And now they use their authority to corrupt us. We're not their puppets. We still have our free will. But it means that there's, there's going to be an undertow, an influence that moves us in a direction. Aspects of society that will move us in a direction that's contrary to God's will. And so insofar as any culture has things, systemic things in it, that dehumanize people, well, you're seeing a reflection of the influence of the demonic powers. And so far as you find injustice or uh, uh, hatred or paranoia, racial divides, violence, going on in any society, to that degree, you're seeing the influence of these fallen powers uh, working in that culture. Now, when you look at the life of Jesus with that understanding, with that warfare understanding, what you see is this. Jesus' life, in a first century context, he revolted. By the way he lived, he revolted against everything in his culture that was contrary to the will of God. Anything that didn't align with, with Abba Father's uh, character, he lived a life that revolted against it. And in revolting against the ungodly aspects of his culture, he was also rebelling against the powers that fuel those ungodly aspects of his culture. Jesus lived a, a, a lifestyle spiritual warfare of revolting against the principalities and powers that influenced his culture to go in directions that were contrary to God. I, I, I wrote a, a book on this called The Myth of a Christian Religion. Not, not nation, but religion. And it's all about uh, the different ways that Jesus 
if you understand him in the first century context, how he rebels against ungodly aspects of his culture and therefore against the principalities and powers that fuel those aspects of his culture. So here's a little snippet. The way that Jesus manifested his self-sacrificial life. Um, he is, is uh, rebelling against the powers that fuel all self-centeredness. Everything about Jesus, from the incarnation to his sacrificial death, manifests God's self-sacrificial love. And in doing that, he's rebelling against self-centeredness in his culture. And in doing that, he's rebelling against the powers that fuel self-centeredness in his culture. Uh, Jesus, the, the generosity that he exhibited throughout his life, revolted against the fallen powers that fuel greed. Everything about Jesus' life is, is, is manifesting the generosity of God. As God is giving himself to us in the incarnation and the crucifixion, the resurrection, it's all about God wanting to invite us in to the joy and the bliss of, of his triune being. He's being generous by giving us himself. And every act of generosity on the part of Jesus is pushing back against greed in his culture and therefore pushing back against the powers that fuel greed in his culture. Uh, by healing people and multiplying the food and rebuking a life-threatening storm. Jesus is revolting against the fallen powers that corrupt nature and afflict people. Because in God's original kingdom, there's not to be any sickness, disease, deformity. In God's kingdom, there was not to be any shortage of food. In God's, in God's original plan for, the, for creation, there wasn't supposed to be killer storms that we didn't have authority over. And so Jesus lives a life that revolts against that. And revolting against that, he's revolting against the corrupted powers that are, are, are influencing it. The way that Jesus treated and spoke about non-Jews revolted against the fallen powers that fuel racism. Uh, it, it's radical when you read it in a first century context. Jesus, he holds up Samaritans as, as heroes in some of his stories, and he treats them with respect and dignity. The Jews hated Samaritans. They just it, it couldn't stand them. Uh, incredible racial prejudice there. And then Jesus holds up a Roman centurion and says he has got greater faith than he's ever seen in Israel. Well, the Ro- Jews hate the Romans. And even worse, they hate a Roman who's a centurion who was a leader of a military battalion. And so the way Jesus lived and the way Jesus taught rebelled against the, the racial divides of his culture and therefore rebelled against uh, the powers that fuel all racial divides in all cultures. Uh, the dignified way Jesus treated women revolted against the fallen powers that fuel sexism. Read in the first century context, Jesus' treatment of women is radical. Now, cultures have to change by incremental steps. If you try to change it too fast, it'll backfire on you. And so Jesus accommodated certain patriarchal aspects of his first century culture. He, for example, uh, had all of his, his 12 disciples were, were, were males. And, but the reason for that is because if he would have tried to put a female in that position, well, it wouldn't have been loving towards her, and it wouldn't have been helpful for the kingdom. It would be like uh, trying to have a woman as a senior pastor of a church in Afghanistan. It's just not going to work. She's going to get killed, and no one's going to listen to her. You've got to work slowly at changing cultures. So Jesus does accommodate certain aspects of that. When it's loving to accommodate, he accommodates. But he, at the same time, he pushes the envelope pretty far, in terms of bucking up against the sexism of his culture and therefore rebelling against the powers that fuel that. The dignified way Jesus treated the poor and the outcasts, and the way that he gave warnings against uh, riches and, 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 and the rich, he was revolting against the fallen powers that fuel classism and that, that fuel the injustice that classism always brings about. 
In the kingdom, there's to be no structuring, no stratification of people based on economic status and, and, and things of that sort. Jesus lives a life that puts on display the kingdom of God and therefore rebels against every aspect of the culture that is contrary to the kingdom. By modeling and teaching nonviolence, Jesus revolted against the rebellious powers that fuel all violence. In his teachings, in his life, his death, uh, he, he's just putting on display what it is to love enemies and to refuse to engage in violence. And so he's rebelling against the powers that fuel, fuel all violence. Um, by refusing to be co-opted into a nationalistic agenda, and by allowing himself to be crucified as a nationalistic threat, Jesus revolted against the fallen powers that fuel ungodly nationalism. In God's original plan, the humanity wasn't to be divided up against, in, into competing nations, warring nations, paranoid over one another, constantly spying on one another. Uh, no, that, that's all a result of the fall. And so in the kingdom, we don't give any significance to national distinctions. It's a transnational kingdom. And so the way Jesus lives and the way that he teaches, he, he will not be sucked into the nationalistic agenda of a lot of Jews, and they're always trying to do that. And by being crucified as a national threat to Pilate, he's putting on display the ugliness of nationalistic systems and living and putting on display the kingdom that, that doesn't recognize or give any significance to those distinctions. And finally, by uh, refusing to uh, be co-opted into political agendas and by refusing to acknowledge any authority over him except his heavenly Father, Jesus revolted against the fallen powers that influence people to lord over others and to find security in the ones that lord over others. You see, in God's original plan, human beings were to, to reign over the earth in the animal kingdom, but we weren't supposed to reign over each other. We're to have one authority, and that is God. Um, and, and, and that's why when, when the Israelites wanted a king, because they felt insecure, they wanted a king like the other nations, God says to Samuel, they have rejected me. To put security in a human ruler is to reject God as king. All of our trust and all of our security is to be found in him. And so Jesus doesn't recognize any authority as legitimate over him. Uh, God alone is, is the Father is, is his authority. And um, by, by refusing to be co-opted into all other questions about the politics of the age, he's bucking up against that whole system of humans lording over one another and finding security in lording over one another. And he's putting on display a kingdom where everyone finds all of their security in Abba Father. And so, folks, you can see that, that Jesus' whole life was one long, sustained uh, lifestyle warfare. He manifested the kingdom of God at every turn and therefore bucked up against the kingdom of darkness at every turn. This is why I like to call the kingdom a revolution. The, the, the kingdom that Jesus inaugurated is a revolution. It revolts. Revolution has the word revolt in it. Uh, a revolution consists of revolters. Those who say, we're not going to take it any longer. They rise up as a revolution. Well, Jesus inaugurated a revolution. Uh, a people who, having the character of Abba Father being birthed in them, they say, we will not conform any longer. We will not be enslaved any longer. We will not be entrapped any longer. We will not be in bondage to the Antichrist aspects of the culture anymore. And they revolt. And Jesus didn't revolt by trying to grab hold of Caesar's power. He didn't revolt by trying to tweak Caesar's system. He didn't revolt by trying to raise up an army to crush his enemies. No, he revolted by committing to live a certain way under the lordship of Abba Father. He revolted by simply living in the kingdom and teaching the kingdom and manifesting the kingdom at every turn. And this is why, folks, this is how we're to revolt. 
Our revolution isn't about grabbing hold of, of, of political power or, or trying to win over our opponents by, by imposing our will on theirs or, or, or defeating them with, with, with laws or tanks or swords or bombs or anything of the sort. Um, that's why I'm always harping here. We've got to be very careful not to get sucked in to the venomous, hateful, cultural, and political wars that characterize our culture. Uh, no, our battle is never against flesh and blood. And, and we're not going to win by grabbing more of that power and tweaking that system. God's kingdom is not of this world. And so the way we win is the way Jesus won. We win by living differently. We win by swimming upstream in the culture. We win by being willing to sacrifice of our time and resources. We win by refusing to hate anybody. We win by loving our enemies. We win by refusing to retaliate. We win by purging our minds of all violence and and hatred and purging our lives of all, all violence and all hatred. We win by bonding together and manifesting God's love. We win by feeding the poor and feeding the hungry and housing the homeless. We win by washing people's feet the way Jesus did. That's, that's the, it's a humble revolution. It doesn't look like anything like the revolutions of this world. It looks like Jesus Christ. But that's the kind of power we're to trust to win in the end. That's the revolution that, 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 that will change the world. Everything else just contributes to further break it. Uh, and so we are to live a life that, that bucks up against every antichrist aspect of our culture. And aspect number one that we've got to focus on is consumerism. We've got to always remember, folks, that we are in a war. We're in a war. Literally, we're in a war. This isn't a metaphor. We're in a war. It's just as real as any war the world's ever known. It's just invisible. And you have to have spiritual eyes, eyes of faith, to see it. But we're in a war. See, here's why this is important. People think differently when they're in a, a war than they do when they're on vacation. Right? In a time of peace. They have an entirely different mindset. When you're on vacation, and we all need vacations. That's natural. But on vacations, you're interested in being as comfortable as possible, enjoying life as much as possible, grabbing as much of the good life as you can, having as much fun as you can, being as inconvenienced as little as possible, staying away from hardships as much as possible, just enjoying things. That's what vacations are for. Rest, relaxation, fun. But in the heat of a battle, well, that's not the time that you're looking for fun and trying to avoid all inconveniences. No, in a battle, your mindset's totally different. Here's an illustration I've used uh, sometime. I, I, I think I mentioned this a couple of years ago, but I, I want to use it again. It just illustrates what I'm talking about clearly. Imagine there's a family, and they want to go on vacation because everybody needs vacations occasionally. And so this family is going to rest and have a lot of relaxation together, and dad's going to sip his martinis, and the kids are going to watch video games, and they're going to go to movies, and they're just going to play board games, and they're just going to have a blast. Yay. But unfortunately, this family, their vacation resort is found in a cabin that they own on Normandy Beach in France. And unfortunately, they take their vacation on 1944, uh, June 5th. So on June 5th, 1944, they're having a good time. They're resting, relaxation. They're playing board games. Dad's sipping his martini. They're, they have video games. Being a little anachronistic here. Uh, go with me. And they're just doing what you do on vacation. They're having fun, 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 fun. Avoiding all inconveniences. Don't want any problems. Push all your problems aside. That's what you do on vacation. June 6th, they wake up and they hear bombs going off and bullets going off and people screaming. They look out the window and they see out in the ocean there uh, that there's this whole fleet, massive fleet 
of U.S. and British uh, ships that have, have, have come to shore. And soldiers are running out of the beach. And they look up and over the cliffs, uh, on, on the top of the, the, the cliffs right, right above their cabin, they see the Germans are shooting at, at, at the Americans as they're coming on, on, on board. And they're dropping like flies. This, of course, is D-Day, June 6, 1944. It was the battle that was the turning point of World War II. Now, what would you think? Suppose the captain of this, this uh, fleet calls up this guy and, and on the phone and says, Sir, uh, listen, this is uh, the captain of the U.S. fleet, and I understand that you are Americans and that you own a cottage on the beach, uh, which unfortunately is where we are having our attack today, and we now need you to give us that, to loan us that cottage so that we can use it as a, as a little hospital, a little triage center. We've got to bring our wounded in there. In fact, we're going to have to ask you to help us uh, to, to put bandages on people and care for people and, and, and meet their needs. And what would you think if the father says, Forget you, man. We're on vacation. Man, we just want to have fun. We don't want to be inconvenienced. This isn't the right time for a war. We want to, you know, I got a martini to finish here. You you can't have my cabin. See, that would have been appropriate on June 5th, but on June 6th, it's utterly inappropriate. Um, It's it's, it's absurd because you can't be on vacation in the middle of a battle. Folks, we are in the middle of a battle. The New Testament tells us this all over the place. But we've got to realize that we are conditioned we're conditioned. This is, a, this is a central aspect of, of the consumer mindset. We're conditioned to live as though we're on vacation. We're conditioned with a vacation mindset. What else is pursuing the American dream other than that? I want as much of the good life now as possible. I want the good stuff now. I want a nice house. I want a nice car. I want to clothes. I, I want comfort. I want to avoid all inconveniences as much as possible. That's a vacation life mindset. And it'd be totally appropriate. If we, if there was no fall, if there's no battle, if this was a vacation resort, the whole earth was a vacation resort, and it will be someday when the kingdom comes in fullness, well, that'd be wonderful thinking. But right now, it's not a vacation resort. Earth has become the Normandy beach of a cosmic battle. And, and, and God has called his people, whether you knew it or not when you surrendered to Jesus, when you signed up for this thing, you enlisted in a, in a war. And you are a, an important soldier in the war. And so we're called to live with a warfare mindset. One of the differences it makes is this. On vacation, uh, you spend everything on yourself. That's what you do on vacation. All your money spent on yourself. In a war, you ration everything because the important thing is not you. The important thing is furthering the wartime effort. You know, in World War II, uh, even America put a halt on pursuing the American dream. For a couple of years, uh, they put a halt on that because what mattered was going forward in the war. They rationed everything. My dad used to talk about this sometimes. Uh, they had coupons. The, the government issued everybody these, 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 these uh, rationing coupons. And, and you bought things with these coupons. You were only allowed so much. And they gave you a, a, a rationing coupon book to keep record of all your coupons, to make sure that you're, you're pacing yourself. Because once you ran out, you're done. Uh, the troops need this stuff, so you can't go hoarding it. Everybody is allotted a certain amount based on how many kids you have and, and things of that sort. It was a ra- everything was rationed. Here's a list of some of the things that we fo- I found on the internet that were rationed during World War II. Why does it say rationed items 631 through 33? <laughs> I have no idea. This is the book of rationed items, chapter 6, verse 31 through 33. I have no idea. This is a bizarre church, if you ask me. I don't know. Who runs this thing? We got tires. Because, uh, you know, the, the, the troops needed that, so you had to put a ration on it, put a limit on it. Cars, bicycles, typewriters, gasoline. 
You can't just get all the gas you want. No, it's, you got you got you got stamps for that. You got to pace yourself. Fuel, oil, kerosene, stoves, rubber, shoes, sugar, coffee, processed foods, meats, cans, fish, cheese, and milk. On June 5th, you can have as much as you want. On June 6th, you got to pace yourself. You've got you can only do what your commanding officer. You can only get what your commanding officer says you can get. So my question here is this: We're in a state of war. Have you been listening to Abba Father about his? Rationed coupons. Uh, are you doing what he's allotted you to do? Are you getting what he's allotted you to get, but not more? Instead of war, everything gets rationed. Are we listening to Abba Father saying, how much am I supposed to... Just because you have it doesn't mean you're supposed to have any of it. No, because you don't have any of it. It's his. Are we listening to say, uh, what, what's your rationing? Uh, how do you want me to use this? Um, look, at if, if, if earthly countries... And earthly wars understand that things have to be rationed in a time of war. How much more should God's kingdom people take seriously the call to ration our resources for the warfare effort? If ordinary citizens, earthly citizens, in in loyalty to their earthly rulers and their earthly countries, if they're willing to ration for the cause of a war, how much more should kingdom people, out of allegiance to our heavenly eternal Father and the heavenly eternal kingdom that we belong to, and its heavenly eternal cause, how much more should we be willing to ration? Are we listening to Abba Father about his allotment and, and pursuing that? Understand that every act of generosity that we do, every, every kingdom thing we manifest, it is pushing, it's an act of war. It's like, like with Jesus. It, it pushes back the kingdom of darkness, and it causes ripple effects that go on and on. Um, in fact, everything we do for good or evil has ripple effects uh, on others that, that, make, uh, that plant seeds and that bear fruit either for the kingdom or against the kingdom later on. And so we're to live with a warfare mindset, a rationing mindset, and an understanding that our actions make a difference. It's important. We're planting seeds that will bear fruit later on. So here's the thing. Next week, I'm going to be giving a bunch of tips, practical things that we can begin to do to move out of our present lifestyle to begin to move into more of a warfare lifestyle. But I, I wanted to end by asking, here's the thing. We, we, we've had the, here at the Woodland Hills, the last two years especially, I've noticed a number of younger families coming. Um, for the sole reason is that they, they love the vision of the kingdom that we're teaching here. And some of these younger families are radical. I mean, they're taking this stuff and they're going in radical, beautiful directions with it. Um, I, 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 I just love it. Uh, one of these couples is Nicole and John Mitchell. Um, and I've just gotten to know Nicole in particular over the last year. And I, I just love these folks and what God's doing in their life and, and how they've been radicalized. Radicalized revolutionaries. Um, and I, Nicole shared with me a story that just perfectly illustrates this kingdom concept of acting in a way that plants seeds that bears fruit later on. And so I wanted to close this message by asking Nicole to come up and just share a little bit of this story. Nicole, would you give a warm Woodland Hills welcome to Nicole? God bless you. Be anointed. Good morning. Thank you, Greg. Um, I'm Nicole Mitchell, and I'm just so thankful to Greg for letting me come up here and share a little bit of our story. Greg and Paul Eddie have changed really the direction of our family's life and my life personally, so I am forever indebted to them. Um, That'll be a story for another time. Um, As Greg mentioned, my husband and I have chosen to live simply and missionally with where we live and how we live, Um, and I'm hoping in the future to share our family's journey as it's been pretty pretty fascinating. Um, But this morning, I'm actually going to tell a story about my husband, 
lucky man, um, about how an act of generosity that changed his life and continues to impact our family's life today. Um, during his college years, my husband lived the American way of life, kind of like what Greg was talking about with the vacation mindset, um, did what he wanted to do, and um, he, so he chose to party and party and party some more, um, and as a result, didn't make the wisest choices, but he came to know Christ during those years, and as he was being mentored and discipled, he felt God was calling him into the ministry to be a missionary. But the debt he had racked up from his lifestyle previously um, was pre- preventing him from doing so. And one night a guy asked him, John, what is it that's holding you back from going into ministry? And John said, it's my credit card debt. And the guy asked him, well, how much is it? And he said, it's $7,000. And the guy pulled out his checkbook and wrote him a check for $7,000. And that act of generosity continues to impact our family today. Not only did it let John go into ministry for two years, um, but it really set him free and cut that final tie that he had to his past and allowed him to become the man he was meant to be and to do what God was calling him to do. Not only that, I met John after his years in ministry, and really I met the new John. He was and still is this incredible man, full of wisdom and tenderness, and he loves Jesus and he loves people. And so naturally, I fell in love with him. And another benefit of that generosity was he didn't bring any of that debt into our marriage. And so that act of this guy continues to inspire us to pursue a simple life so that we can give generously just as he gave generously to John. And so what I've learned over the past couple years is that God has placed us in this world and given us the freedom to make choices and that these choices have a ripple effect. And we can make choices that have a ripple effect that spread love and light and freedom and move the kingdom forward. Or we can make choices that have a ripple effect that um, spread darkness and bondage and brokenness and moves the kingdom of darkness forward. And so it's my prayer, not only for our family, but for every person in this room today, that we would live in such a way that sets people free. Just as this guy did for John, living below his means and setting money aside, I want us, all of us, to be able to free up our resources, to set people free, to become the people they are meant to be, and to do what God is calling them to do. That's the kingdom, and that's the way of life. And so my prayer is that we will set others free. Amen? Amen. 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 I just thought, as she was, Nicole was sharing that, that we're either you know, spreading the health of the kingdom or, or we're spreading the, the, the affluenza virus that we spoke about last week. It's contagious either way, uh, but we're to be spreading the health and the wholeness of the kingdom. One of the things I think we're supposed to demonstrate is, uh, is just the, to the world the, the joy of being able to have resources to give. It's so much fun to give. It, there's nothing more fulfilling um, to be outflowing towards people and modeling that, and that's contagious. So that's what we're talking about, folks. Uh, seek Abba Father about uh, his rationing program, because we're in a war, so you know he's got it, and, um, and submit it to him, and then be seeking God's wisdom as to how to begin to move in this direction, because you can't give what you don't have. Unless we're living below our means, we've got nothing left over to, to offer the kingdom, to offer others, um, and it just binds us. Would you uh, stand up, and I want to ask the prayer teams to come forward. If you're here this morning and have any need whatsoever, I, I'd like to encourage you to come forward and pray with these folks, whether it's an economic issue or a health issue or 
uh, something else of the sort. Um, come up here and get, get, get prayer for that. I just want to end by sending us out with, with just this thought, this prayer. That as we leave here, can we do it as a people who are committed to being revolutionaries, radicalized revolutionaries, who therefore revolt, uh, to put on display the character of Abba Father, and therefore to buck up against everything in the, our culture that is contrary to the character of the Abba Father? And can we commit to being a people who are seeking his, his guidance on what we are to keep and what we're to give, his rationing program, and a people who are therefore learning the joy of pouring out into the life of others, causing ripple effects of the kingdom to go on and on and on. I pray this is the reality in our hearts. The Spirit seals this message in us as we leave this place to now go out and do a warfare of love in Jesus' name. And all God's revolutionary said, Amen. God bless you guys. Go out and love on the world.